Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. This is season two, episode five, and really this is the second episode of our two-part series on drug use disorders and veterans. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking to two doctors about ongoing treatment and research at the Iowa City VA. Levi is going to provide some more information about them. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, You know, the VA has a long history of funding uh, research that is focused on drug addiction and substance abuse disorders and veterans. Uh, And the reason for that, if you listen to the last episode, is that it's higher in the veteran population than in uh, the general population and even higher in those with PTSD than those without. And so um, we're going to introduce you to a couple of doctors, like Brandon said. Uh, The first one is Dr. Anthony Miller, and he's a staff psychiatrist for the past 11 years at the VA, maybe 12 now. He is uh, the medical director of addictive disorder services at the Iowa City VA, and he's an expert in opiate addiction. Um, and and with in, in his portion of the episode, we have a lengthy discussion about what is drug addiction, how it happens, uh, what occurs in the body when it happens, and how the VA tackles that problem and some of the treatment options out there for veterans. Um, so it's very informative for those that may receive care from the VA. And in the last 20 minutes, we really highlight some of the state-of-the-art research that's going on with Dr. John Wimmy, who is the Director of Research for Behavioral Health at the Iowa City VA and the Roy J. Carver Endowed Chair of Psychiatry and Neuroscience at the University of Iowa. He's been doing research uh, with the VA for 21 years, and he studies a protein in the brain uh, that is likely important for addictive behaviors. And he'll introduce you to that a little bit. Um, So uh, as I said, first, we're gonna have Dr. Anthony Miller and then followed directly by Dr. John Wimmy talking about his research. So we really hope you enjoy this episode uh, and thanks for listening again. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast today. Uh, We're interviewing Dr. Anthony Miller. Hello, Dr. Anthony Miller. Hello. uh, He comes to us from Iowa City. Uh, He's a psychiatrist at the VA um, for about 11 years and he's the head of the medical, or he's the medical director uh, for addictive disorder services at the VA. Um, and he is an expert on opiate addiction. Oh, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hard to, make, hard to think well, of myself as an expert, but yeah, that's well, I think what I, Christina, yeah. Christina <laughs> thinks you're an expert on it. So yeah. she definitely, and I know that you've given talks about it, right? Yeah. yeah. So I would call you an expert on that. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll go with that. Okay, that's the intro. It's all out of the way. That's the weird part. Yeah, it's always the weird part. Okay. So, um, one thing that really stood out to me with with um, our interview of Trevor was how much of an impact you made on his life. Mm -hmm. Um, That really comes out in the interview. Uh, he basically thanks you for his life. And it was, it was interesting to hear that. And, you know, I, I come from a family with a long history of really bad addiction. Uh, both my brothers, uh, my dad, um, you know, I'm the first male in my family to graduate from high school and, and go on to do whatever. And, you know, so I've seen addiction firsthand, lived with it my entire life. And there's always these people that really affect the addict. Um, there's some sort of person in their life that really affects them and, and gets them to, 
to, I don't know, get on the right path is not the correct term to use, I would say, but, but realize that they want to do better for themselves or, or, or you know, um, live a more fulfilling life in some way. And so, you know, what, what, you know, hearing that sort of thing and it, what is it like to hear that feedback from uh, a patient that really thanks you for yeah, that, I mean, that's a real honor um, that, that he said that. I appreciate that. Uh, and it's one of the kind of gratifying things about working in the field is that you really do see tremendous improvement in people's lives. Unfortunately, not everybody, but, you know, the people who really engage in treatment and do well, it's just, uh, it's really neat to see. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So um, how did you start working for the VA? Um well, kind of, kind of by accident. Um, uh, I was living in Maine, um, and um, my wife and I had uh, young children, and we'd had some family uh, living in Maine, and some of them, uh, a couple key people uh, passed away, and a couple key people moved away, and we sort of were left with raising little kids and not having any family close by. So we were looking for opportunities to move back home to Iowa, and... Um, had looked at a number of different opportunities and was sort of not seeing anything that uh, um, that looked viable. And then out of the blue, um, several months after I'd sort of given up on my looking for my job in Iowa, uh, got called uh, by Brian Cook, who was a psychiatrist at the VA, was the head of the mental health service line here, um, who had gotten my name from somebody at the university and, and said, you know, we're really, we've got the position. It seems like you'd be a good fit for it. Um, you want to come out and take a look? And I was like, I hadn't really thought about working for the VA. I mean, I'd done some rotations at the VA in medical school, um, but you know, it had not been something that I'd really given a whole lot of thought to. Um, so kind of stumbled into it because it was my, my ticket back home to Iowa. And um, you know, now I really wouldn't work anywhere else. Um, it's, a, it's a great system to work in um, because um, even though you know, the VA unfortunately gets kind of a bad name for being a, uh, a big bureaucracy and, and having, uh, you know, having some uh, rules and policies that seem a little arbitrary, but, uh, but I find that in, in all the ways that are important, uh, the VA is really the best place I've worked. I can get uh, what my patients need for them, um, and uh, I don't have to worry about uh, uh, business aspects or those kind of things because somebody else takes care of all of that. Um, and the vets themselves have been great to work with. And again, it's a it's a population that I hadn't really honestly thought a lot about before I came to work here. Um, and they're just, a, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, group of people, people who have had, um, uh, by nature of their service, have had interesting uh, lives and experiences. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been a good place to work. So how does opiate addiction start? Mm. I don't think there's one answer to that. Um, what we found out from this experience over the last you know, 20, 25 years um, with the rise of opioids being prescribed for chronic pain is that um, about 25, 30% of people on long-term opioid therapy um, will develop signs of opioid use disorder, um, which is the current clinical terminology for for what we'll call opioid addiction. Um, 
so for some people, that's what happens. They, they start with, uh, with an injury or a painful condition, um, get prescribed the medications. Um, for some people, discover that it not only helps with pain, but also helps with decreasing other negative experiences like anxiety or depression or low mood. Or they discover that they can get a, a high or a euphoric feeling from it. Um, so for some people, it starts there with exposure to it uh, as a pain uh, treatment. For other people, the path is very different. Um, that they're really they're they're looking for a high, and that's that's how they come to it, um, not through prescribed use, but by getting uh, getting pills from another person or um, some people who you know, seek out heroin initially as their their first opioid. Um, much more often, people come to it originally through pills. Um, even of people who are you know, whose first addictive behavior with it has is through illicitly obtaining medication or heroin. A lot of times, their first exposure to opioids was still in the context of getting it as a treatment for pain. Sure. Do you experience, in some level, some animosity from, from some patients? Do they blame their problem from, um, hey, the doctor gave me medicine, this is supposed to help me, and now I'm in this predicament because of the doctor, so why should I trust said doctor again? Yeah. Yes, that no. absolutely happens. Yeah. How do you how do you kind of get over that hurdle with some of these patients? Is it more of a building trust over time? I definitely there's an aspect of that. Um, I can kind of related to that too. Um, is that there's not necessarily always a, a, a clean cut line, right? You know, this person has an addiction and this person doesn't. Um, and there's definitely not a clean line when we're talking about chronic pain, that people who have um, <clears throat> chronic painful conditions and begin to show some of the, uh, the signs or behaviors related to addiction, um, they don't necessarily fit neatly in one, you know, in the pain bucket or in the addiction bucket. And, you know, for a lot of those people, um, you know, accepting that they have an addiction or uh, accepting treatment for an addiction that they're not sure they have, uh, that that's even a bigger challenge, I think. Uh, for the person who says, you know, hey, I, I'm, this is definitely out of control and I have an addiction, I'm looking for help, in some ways that's, uh, that's an easier thing, even if, even if it started with a prescription from a doctor. Um, the harder ones are the ones who say, you know, addiction is not my problem, pain is my problem. And... You know, the fact that people are trying to limit my use of these medications or say I have a problem with it is not something I necessarily accept or so, agree with. So in reality, though, I think it's safe to say that, that we now know that opiates are not good for chronic pain treatment. Correct. They do a very good job of treating pain. There's no doubt about it. But in terms of actually treating chronic pain, they can actually lead to increased pain states. Um, obviously, there's the addiction factor that goes along with it, both, you know, mental and physical addiction to these pills, uh, the withdrawals that happen when people run out of their pills early. I experienced all this with my dad quite a bit. Um, he was one of the people that was like, no, the pain is my problem, not these opiates. And, you know, he ended up overdosing three times unintentionally uh, uh, later on in his life as he got older. And he finally just, the doctors just took, like, wouldn't give him pills anymore as this whole realization yeah. that this epidemic occurred, right? And I think it, it's very difficult for these people with chronic pain because 
they want a pill to treat their pain. Like that's what our is almost like our society has created is that there's a, should be a medicine for this mm-hmm. and there just isn't right besides opiates. And, um, at least in my opinion, they're not great at treating. And I think the research actually bears that out a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, first thing, uh, you know, I just want to say, I'm sorry uh, to hear about your, Oh, it's all good. I just want to try and experience that. But no, it is, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a horrible, um, it's a horrible disease. It's a horrible thing to have happen. And, um, you know, the, the story that, that you're telling about your dad is, you know, sadly, you know, not unique. I mean, no, no, not at all. Yeah. Common experience, unfortunately. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, opioids were sort of sold as a, as a safe and effective treatment for pain based on experience with using them to treat acute pain in a controlled medical setting and extrapolating from that to say that, you know, you can treat people for forever. And if they get tolerant to it, you just increase their dose. And, um, and unfortunately that approach, which was really pushed very hard in the mid nineties, you know, what we've learned, uh, over the subsequent 20 some years is that, um, a lot of people are still in pain, um, despite being treated with opioids. Um, there's this thing called opioid induced hyperalgesia where people actually become more sensitive to painful stimuli because their natural systems um, you know, develop a response uh, to, to compensate for being exposed to opioids all the time. Um, so their sensitivity to pain actually increases. And then, you know, when people go into withdrawal, uh, one of the, the cardinal symptoms of opioid withdrawal, if, uh, if people have been on opioids for a while and now they stop taking them, uh, is having pain. Um, and having pain um, not only where they originally were having pain, if they're being treated for back pain, they stop taking opioids, they have opioid withdrawal, the back hurts more, but they also have pain in their joints and headaches and in their abdomen. And so uh, it really, uh, I, I think, cements um, for the patient that, you know, this really works because look how horrible I feel when I'm not on. Right. So mm-hmm. everything hurts if I'm not taking it. So this is really, you know, it's treating all these pains, including pains I didn't even realize I had. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And yet, you know, that person possibly had they not been prescribed an opioid to begin with or only been treated short term with it may actually be in less pain today, which is kind of an unknowable thing for any given individual. I mean, we know that this heightened sensitive sensitivity to pain exists, but for any one person to say, you know, you, you would be better off if you didn't have these, that's the harder thing I think to, to wrap our heads around. For sure. Yeah. So if a veteran is on opiates and has an addiction problem and thinks they have an addiction problem, what should they do? Um, if they want to seek treatment at the VA. Yeah. Um, so for vets who are already established and have um, you have primary care, um, that's uh, a lot of times the first entry point is um, to talk with the primary care provider um, who can put in a referral uh, for um, the addiction treatment program. Uh, but we certainly have had people who you know, have kind of started with us uh, with us in the in the addiction treatment uh, program uh, that they call up looking for services specifically. Um, 
so you know, we take people who are self-referred as well as people who are referred by the primary care provider or by another specialty. Uh, a lot of the folks that come to us for opiate addiction uh, actually have been recently coming to us uh, from the pain clinic. So do they end up do they end up going into an outpatient treatment program or is it a is it an inpatient treatment program generally or does it probably depend on the case? Yeah, um, we have uh, we have both things available um, for opiate addiction. Uh, frequently, uh, our best bet actually is uh, is starting treatment in the outpatient setting, um, which is maybe a little counterintuitive. Um, that I think people expect that you know this is such a such a, a difficult problem and the withdrawal symptoms can be so bad that you know I think there's a perception that they need to be uh, hospitalized. But a lot of times we can get people feeling better and stabilized fairly quickly in the outpatient setting. Is, is opiate withdrawal dangerous? Usually not. Um, kind of the, the, the line of often, um, I often say with, uh, with uh, both our patients as well as our students is, to, is that uh, opioid addiction is not life-threatening, or excuse me, opioid withdrawal is not life-threatening. It just makes you wish you were dead, um, and 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 I say that it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but realistically, um, people feel horrible. It's you know the, the very part of our brain that determines if um, if things are okay or not in our environment uh, is affected, and people feel a, a profound. Um, sense of, of dysphoria, yeah, the opposite of euphoria, dysphoria, that, that things are not well, things are not right. Um, but most people, if they're relatively healthy adults, um, opioid withdrawal is not you know, life-threatening and doesn't cause any kind of permanent harm, um, which is actually, you know, makes it less dangerous than withdrawal from, say, alcohol or from sedative mm -hmm. drugs. Yeah, so can you, so one thing that I always found weird uh, dealing with addiction was was uh, people de demeaning the disease, if you will. So, you know, you hear it all the time. Well, these people made a choice to do drugs. Mm. They made a choice to do this. They made a choice to do that. Um, why can't they just stop? Uh, so can you talk a little bit about how or why we should consider addiction a disease um, versus, you know, some bad life choices? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. It's one that comes up, um, comes up a lot. Uh, I, I like to draw an analogy with, um, with type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes, you know, very common medical problem. Nobody would argue that type 2 diabetes isn't a disease. Does it start with bad choices? Ah, for some people it does. That, you know, lifestyle things like lack of exercise, overeating, particularly overeating, high carb, high fat foods, um, contributes to the risk of, of, of developing diabetes. But that's not all. It's not just that they make a bad choice in terms of what they eat or, or their activity, um, their genetics influences it. So they may have a genetic predisposition to developing diabetes. And then once they have it, they need treatment. They can't just like will it away or necessarily get better just by changing uh, behavioral choices. And they obviously they can't change their genes. 
Um, so I think of, you know, addiction is really um, very parallel to that, that there, we know there's a genetic predisposition. Um, it does tend to run in families. Um, and we know from uh, adoption studies that uh, even if you weren't raised by your relative who had an addictive disorder, that um, you're at higher, higher risk if you have a genetic relative. Um, so there's a genetic risk. There's, uh, there are behavioral choices, yeah. That's, a, that's an aspect of, of how the disease starts. Um, sometimes the behavioral choices what, you know, were made, again, in the case of the person with, with, um, with chronic pain, um, their choice to use opioids was not, you know, they, they didn't necessarily have knowledge that it was a bad behavioral choice. The doctor prescribed it to me. It's, you know, it's, it's medicine. It's good for me. Um, again, not always the case. For some people, it's, you know, yeah, they took it intending to get high, knowing it could be addictive. Yeah, that's true. We all make bad behavioral choices sometimes as far as our health goes. You know, sometimes, yeah, sometimes I don't put my bike helmet on when I ride my bicycle, right? Or sometimes mm -hmm. I don't floss or I definitely eat donuts. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know we all do these things, right? Yeah. We, we, we know things that are, that are risky or unhealthy and, and we choose to do them anyway for a variety of reasons because it's more convenient, tastes better, you know, whatever. And, and so, yeah, I think the same thing applies uh, with use of drugs. You know, people... Um, probably know that it's not healthy, but on the other hand, we don't always choose everything we do in life just based on, you know, the health consequences of it. Um, some people can do that and walk away and never touch it again. That's, you know, great for them. Um, for other people, because of something about their body chemistry, their genetics, um, their uh, mental state at the time, uh, can't do that. That it becomes uh, compulsion uh, to do it again. Um, and with repeated exposure to addictive drugs, people begin to what? lose their you know, lose their ability to moderate or make choices. I was going to say, why can't yeah. why can't someone just say no? Well, one of the things that um, well, there are a couple things. Um, a couple areas of the brain uh, that we might want to talk about. Um, so one is uh, the initial uh, effect um, of, of opioids and other drugs of abuse uh, on the brain um, involves the, the nucleus accumbens, which is a part of our brain that um, is responsive to um, you're going to have to edit this because I'm not doing a very good job here. It's really, it's really. So the yeah. nucleus accumbens, so the, the nucleus the, accumbens is a reward center. The for nucleus the brain. accumbens, yeah, it's 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 right. It, it things that are that things yeah. that are rewarding, uh, things that um, that you want to do again are things that um, provoke a response in the nucleus accumbens. Yeah. So if you want to, um, if you want to teach your pet to do a trick, you you feed. Yeah, you, know, you give them a, a food as a reward, right? So your dog sits and you give the dog a biscuit. Um, getting food, you know, gives you a little dopamine spike in your nucleus accumbens. You know, teaches the dog that that's a good thing to do again, right? Mm -hmm. Drugs of abuse are 
it would stimulate the nucleus accumbens much more robustly. Yeah, and something you know. And so some, if you really wanted to teach your dog to sit, you'd give it heroin. But instead food, of a but, dog food but, but 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 in all seriousness, food yeah. food also triggers the nucleus accumbens. Yeah. Food, sex, right. addiction, yeah. uh, music, uh, yeah. good music will trigger the nucleus accumbens. So it's it's yeah. definitely this center. You can sort of think of it as this overall reward center that uh, strengthens the choice to do that thing again. Right. Yeah. yeah. So taking drugs is something that we learn to do really, really well. Cause you know, it's the same part <laughs> yeah. of our, it's the same part of our brain that, you know, teaches us to do, you know, to eat. Right. I mean, it's sort of, the, yeah, it's sort of hijacking <laughs> that, that reward circuitry, right? right? Yeah. In a way. Yeah. So we got, so we got that as a, as an aspect. Um, and then, you know, we talked about withdrawal, right? So with repeated exposure, the brain adapts, uh, to the presence of the drug, and now you take the drug away and the person experiences withdrawal. So now you're getting, not only did you have the reward for using it, now you have punishment for not using it. Um, and then the third kind of concept going on in the brain is that all of these things affect the prefrontal cortex, you know, the part of our brain that makes decisions. Uh, and so you've got a reward for taking the drug, you've got punishment for not taking the drug, and you have suboptimal function of the part of the brain that figures out whether something's a good idea to do or not. And it's that sort of trifecta, if you will, uh, that makes it really hard to just make a choice to not use a drug. So with such strong reward and punishment uh, dichotomy there, does anyone, in your opinion, fully get over addiction like are they once an addict always an addict but mm. uh but able to uh change their life in a way as to resist doing this or is there a way to not become an addict in a sense um yeah i mean I, there are people with addiction who um are able to to stop and um if you look at like the psychiatric epidemiology literature, they talk about people having spontaneous remission. I don't think there's anything spontaneous about it. I think people um, make a, a choice, they work hard, um, but the thing that's spontaneous about it is that they're not getting uh, formal treatment, maybe. Mm -hmm. That they're, they're figuring out on their own how to, like you say, restructure their lives uh, in such a way that, um, that they no longer uh, have to use the drug. But so, in my, uh, my understanding of that is that is relatively rare, that treatment, that success for addiction um, is much higher when you have a good treatment plan. Absolutely. And I, and I, uh, I bring it up because you know, not everybody follows the same path, and I do think there are people who, who are able to, to manage on their own. In the case of opioids... Um, we know that the risk of relapse is incredibly high. Um, and even people who've been able to abstain for one reason or another uh, for years still has a high relapse rate. So uh, one of the things that, uh, one of the sources of information that we have about it is uh, some experience uh, with a group of um, young men who were addicted to heroin in California who were uh, referred in the legal system to what we would call a drug court now. Um, starting in the early 1960s, and these guys were followed for a period of 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, and in that group of, of men um, who, who were addicted to heroin, even in the, in the 
the ones who were able to sustain abstinence from heroin for 15 years still had about a 25% risk of relapse. Yeah. Why? You know, why, why would you go back to using after, you know, you, you'd been in trouble with the law, um, you'd gotten treatment, you were you know, stable for a long period of time, and yet, you know, one in four of them ended up going back even after 15 years. So there's something, there's something that's a, a profound, long-lasting, maybe permanent uh, change in the brain for people. Yeah. Um, and that's you know, and those are the ones who had achieved a long period of abstinence. R- risk of relapse for people um, who've had shorter periods of abstinence is much higher. Um, and that's well, that's that's actually a common part of treatment is relapse. Yeah. Yeah. Is, that, mean, tr- a, is that true? I, right. I mean, I, I, addiction I think can be thought of as a as a relapsing remitting disease that you know, people get better. But relapses is common and um, somewhat expectable. Um, what we've learned, though, is that medication treatment you know, vastly reduces the risk of relapse in opiate addiction. Yeah. So I actually wanted you to talk a little bit about methadone and suboxone. Um, uh, yeah. So. Yeah. So, so this you know, realization that there was something that, that changed in a person's brain and body um, that put them at high risk for relapse uh, was recognized you know, going back now right, 60 years. Um, researchers um, in New York City in the, uh, in the 1960s um, uh, hypothesized that you know, if you could you know, correct that abnormal body chemistry that occurs in in a person with uh, addiction to heroin or other opioids um, that you could reduce the addictive behavior. And the way that they proposed to do that uh, was with this medication called methadone. So methadone is an opioid. It um, has very similar effects in the brain and the body as does you know, morphine or heroin. But the difference is that methadone is much much slower. So if you take, um, you know, if you take uh, oral morphine or codeine or oxycodone, you experience the effects in less than an hour. If you inject heroin, you experience the effects in less than a minute. Um, with methadone, it builds up slowly. Um, you take one dose, you don't really kind of get the effect of it until two, four hours out. And then it also very, very slowly leaves the body. So after a single dose of methadone, 36 hours later, half of it's still in your, in your, in your, in your body. What that allows us to do is titrate the methadone dose to a level where People don't have much change in the amount of opioid in their system. It's very different than somebody who's abusing short-acting opioids as they go, you know, they use, they feel the intoxicating effects, it wears off, they feel withdrawal effects, they have to redose, and they have to do that. In the case of somebody who's using heroin, they have to do it four or five, six times a day. Whereas with methadone, you know, you can have kind of a steady level where you're not in, you're not in an intoxicated state. And you're also not in a withdrawal state because you're you're stimulating those same receptors, getting some opioid effect, enough to keep you out of withdrawal, but not so much as you get intoxicated. 
Um, so this idea was, you know, it was first um, tried in, in people starting in the 1960s um, and has proven to be one of the most successful treatments, not only for heroin addiction, but one of the most successful treatments in kind of all of behavioral medicine, um, proven to not only you know, prevent return to heroin use, but also to prevent a lot of the, the, um, the, the bad things that happen to people when they use heroin. So less use of um, uh, IV drugs, which in turn you know, causes less spread of things like hepatitis B and C and HIV, um, less crime because people are not needing to commit crimes in order to obtain uh, the drug, um, less use of the hospital, um, less mental health problems um, in that population. So it's been a, a very well-proven treatment. Methadone has problems though. Um, you know, if you take enough of it, you can still get intoxicated. Uh, if you take too much of it, you can overdose and die. Um, and so in order to make it a viable treatment, uh, we have to control people's access to it. And the way that we've done that in the United States is to set up a system of uh, methadone clinics or opiate treatment programs where uh, rather than you know, getting a prescription for methadone and going into the pharmacy and picking up a month worth at a time, they have to go to the methadone clinic and you know, take their uh, take their dose of medication in front of uh, in front of a nurse. Um, so they're not you know they're not in control of their access to the medication, um, at least not in the first few months of treatment. Once people are stable. Um, and you know, showing that they're um, they're doing well in recovery, then they can start to uh, take medication home from the clinic. But even so, it's still in a in a controlled um, uh, short you know, short supplies um, until yeah, again until they're stable. So, what about Suboxone? How does that differ from Methadone? Yeah. So, uh, so Suboxone is a brand name of uh, buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is the uh, the active ingredient. Um, and buprenorphine is an, is an, interesting, um, an interesting opioid. So it, it also, you know, like methadone and morphine and oxycodone and heroin, has uh, a lot of the same effects. The difference with buprenorphine is um, that it's what's called a partial agonist. Uh, so a full agonist turns on a receptor 100%. So morphine turns on uh, the opiate receptors in the brain and spinal cord full on. Uh, methadone turns them full on. Buprenorphine turns it on like 40% of the way. Um, so it has kind of a limited opiate effect. And when you plugged all of the receptors with buprenorphine, um, you still only have a partial opiate effect. The great news about that is for um, a healthy adult who doesn't have other kinds of sedative drugs in their system, that maximum buprenorphine effect isn't enough to kill you. Um, that's a huge advantage over opiates of abuse and a huge advantage even over methadone as a, as a treatment um, because you almost can't overdose. And I say almost because if somebody had, um, if somebody was physically ill, particularly a problem with their breathing, or if somebody was also taking sedative uh, drugs like Valium or Xanax or drinking a lot of alcohol, you could, by combining those factors, end up with a lethal overdose. But lethal overdoses are definitely rare, if not zero, uh, with buprenorphine.
Um, also, because of that only that partial uh, agonist effect, it's also harder to get high with it. Um, so there's there's much less you know much less uh, desirability of it as a as a street drug compared to other opioids. So because there's less diversion to um, abuse and addictive use of it, and because there's less of a risk for um, uh, overdose, uh, we've been able to prescribe this medication in in an outpatient clinic setting. So it's been available in the United States since 2002, and you know. With my patients that I'm treating with this medication, I can you know, give them a prescription, send them to the pharmacy to pick up a month's worth at a time. So is methadone being phased out now in favor of buprenorphine? Um, no. Uh, and in fact, the demand for methadone maintenance is you know, now is at an all-time high because we have an all-time high of people addicted to opioids. Um, so we sort of need, uh, need every option that's available. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people who um, whose level of dependence on opiates is so high that they can't get relief from withdrawal uh, with buprenorphine. Um, that that ceiling effect of buprenorphine is not enough for them to feel normal. And for those people, they're going to be better off served with uh, with methadone maintenance. And then, of course, you know, you have people who are you know, allergic to one medication or another or who have financial constraints that might uh, affect what medication is available. Um, so, yeah, we still we still need methadone maintenance. We need it you know, does in it, many does ways the, more than we ever have. Does the VA yeah. do both? Um, yes. Um, uh, here at the Iowa City VA, we don't, um, we don't have a methadone clinic. We haven't had... Um, uh, a large enough population to make that a uh, um, logistically viable uh, option, um, but we do um, we do refer out to methadone clinics in the community, and there are probably you know, three or four that we refer people to. Okay. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you for your time today. I just want to appreciate you talking to us, and uh, that's it for this episode. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Welcome back to the Vets First Podcast. Today, we have John Wimmy, who's a staff psychiatrist uh, at the Iowa City VA. He's also the Director of Research for Behavioral Health at the Iowa City VA and the Roy G. Carver Chair of Psychiatry and Neuroscience uh, at the University of Iowa. Welcome, John. Thanks, Levi. And then we also have Brandon, uh, per the usual, with us. Hello, everyone. So the, the first thing, John, where do you, where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up at? Oh, I, I was born in Iowa City. I grew up in southeast Iowa in uh, West Burlington. West Burlington? How did so? And then where did you go to? Did you go to high school in West Burlington? Yeah, West West Burlington High School. West Burlington High School. And then you, where did you go to to college at? Uh, Central College in Pella. In Pella. Oh, my so you've kind of been an Iowa guy your whole life, then. For the most part. For the yeah. most part. So once you finished your your college, what what made you want to do medicine? Uh, I think I've uh, been interested in pursuing medicine since I was in high school. Uh, I was interested in the math and sciences, and um, I had a a family doctor who was very inspiring, and I wanted to model him. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you have – so where did you – did you uh, go to Iowa for your 
for your uh, medical school? I completed my MD and PhD degrees at the University of Iowa and then did a psychiatry residency at Iowa. Oh, wow. Here okay. Also. That's fantastic. And so <clears throat> once you once you finished that, um, how did you get involved actually with the VA? Um, I know that the residents here have to do some time over at the VA while they work. Right, yeah. So I started uh, seeing patients as a resident uh, doing rotations at the VA hospital. Yeah, did it pique your interest at all to, to work with veterans? or? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I remember working uh, at that time largely with uh, veterans from the Vietnam uh, era uh, right. who were very interesting and um, had a lot of... Uh, important things to say about Vietnam and their experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So what made you get interested in psychiatry, study of behavior and things of that nature? Uh, I've been interested in the brain for a long time. Uh, and I started doing some research as a, a student at Central College in Pella. Um, and then I think that's what led to my choice of in, in part to my choice of doing a psychiatry or as, as a residency. So during your time in residency, did you start doing research then? How did you get actually involved? You did an MD-PhD, right. which is the co-medical doctorate degree uh, in MD, and then he also did a doctor of philosophy. Uh, that's what MD-PhD stands for. And so what, what did you study while you were coming up through your MD-PhD? Uh, can you explain? My graduate. Bit? So, so I initially started doing uh, some work on the insulin receptor uh, with a professor here named Jeff Pesson, who was in the physiology department. And um, through Jeff, I met uh, Scott Moy Rowley, who became my PhD mentor. Uh, and I did some work in uh, yeast, actually brewers' yeast, uh, as a genetic model. So, in in my graduate training, I learned a fair amount about uh, genetics, molecular biology, and biochemistry. So that's a long ways away from the brain. Why did you choose to do that for your PhD if you were thinking about going into psychiatry at the time? I, I was advised and I agreed, I think, that it was really important to do some rigorous uh, mechanistic basic science as a good training experience. And I think the, the um, science that I learned Doing yeast biology was a really good uh, example of that. You know, one thing I think that's difficult for people to understand is what is the usefulness of studying yeast? Mm -hmm. How would a yeast, a single-celled organism, compare to humans, and why is that important? Why is it important that we do these mechanistic studies uh, in science? How, does that actually lead to human health at all eventually? So it's a simple model system, but a lot of the... Um, biology at the single cell level is is reasonably well preserved in yeast to be able to compare yeast and mammalian cells like human cells. So yeast do a lot of the same things that human cells do. And so because it's a very simple model, you can accomplish a lot in a much shorter period of time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it's very high throughput or, or yeah, I guess that's what you would call it, high throughput. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so you can manipulate genes and make knockouts and um, in, in a matter of days and weeks in a, in a yeast as opposed to years potentially in, a, in an animal. Nice. Um, so do you want to ask yeah, a question? Yeah, so John, what's your current focus on research? What are the your most um, 
I praise, uh, excited about with uh, um, current directions that you're going. Yeah, so um, for a number of years now, I've been interested in studying a family of ion channels that are expressed in the brain uh, that are activated by acidic pH or low pH by acid in the brain. And these are called acid-sensing ion channels. And they influence the excitability of neurons and how well neurons function in the brain. And so it, when the brain becomes acidic, these channels become activated and engage or activate neurons in the brain to ultimately produce behavioral effects. So what kind of medical conditions uh, encourage the brain to become acidic? Like if I happen to get sick or an injury or whatnot, where, where do you see scenarios of the brain becoming acidic and these uh, acid-sensing ion channels becoming more active? So in medical school back 20 years ago, when I was in medical school, uh, we were taught that uh, brain pH was very, in fact, pH throughout the entire body was very tightly controlled by organ systems such as the kidneys and the lungs. And um, there was not much knowledge at the time about uh, pH fluctuations. They, they were thought to be generally bad things um, that occurred mainly in certain disease states. Uh, but since that time, and, and largely through some of the work we've done with these acid-sensing ion channels, we've learned that pH is really uh, very dynamic, particularly in the brain. And so many things can influence brain pH, uh, including blood flow, uh, neural activity, synaptic transmission, as well as breathing and, and renal function, as I mentioned before. When we're discussing the term pH, we really mean that the, the amount of Acidity. Acid, acid, if you will, in the blood, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's true that it is really tightly regulated on a body, on a whole organism scale. Is that is that correct? Is that a good way to think about it? But it can change very drastically locally. Right. It can fluctuate locally, and it's and it's really important that it's controlled because it can have dramatic effects on many molecules and receptors uh, throughout the body, including the brain. Yeah, and so some of the work and the reason why we wanted to interview you actually is that um, some of the work you've done with ASICs um, has been to pioneer this idea that it's uh, involved in, possibly involved with addictive behaviors in, in organisms. Um, could uh, yeah, that's maybe, right. And so yeah. there's the, an area of the brain uh, called the nucleus accumbens uh, has been implicated by a whole host of prior research uh, to be important for reward and pleasure uh, and also drug-seeking behaviors. And the nucleus accumbens is one of the areas of the brain where these acid-sensing ion channels is particularly highly expressed. And so that observation that these channels are abundant in this brain region involved in addiction drew our attention to its potential role in addiction-related phenomena and behavior. That's good. <laughs> that was a really good explanation of that. So these uh, ion channels, these ASIC ion channels that detect uh, acidity uh, in the nucleus accumbens, how did you come to find out that they were important in this drug, be drug addictive behavior? 
Right. So over time, we've made uh, genetic manipulations in animals. So we have deleted the gene that encodes these ion channels, and we've also been able to overexpress the gene uh, in mice. And we've also developed uh, viruses that can be delivered to brain areas that can uh, either delete the gene or increase the expression of this gene uh, very specifically or in particular. And so we can make very precise manipulations in the gene that encodes the, the protein that mm -hmm. forms this ion channel. So we can manipulate its expression. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so were you able to, you were able to do this in, in mice and when you do this in mice, when you delete it, are the mice, uh, do they show more of addictive tendency or less addictive tendency? What we've found so far is that mice lacking these ion channels tend to exhibit behaviors that suggest drug seeking or drug craving. And we found that both with drugs like cocaine and also with opioids such as uh, morphine and um, and and opioidergic drugs. Mm -hmm. How are so just to get a little bit off of the research and more onto it, addiction itself? Why are these drugs so addictive? Why is cocaine and 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 opiates so addictive to a, a person? Well, one thing I've learned through this research that's really remarkable is how these drugs can affect the communication between neurons called synapses in, in the brain. And so these drugs actually produce long lasting changes at these synapses that can really influence brain function in a variety of ways and produce this. People think that the, this, this plasticity in these synapses that lasts a long time is responsible, at least in part, for the craving that develops that causes drug users to continue to want to return to using drugs over time. So, so as a craving, it's more of a, when you say craving, um, you know, when I, I, I'm very, um, sort of ignorant when it comes to drug addiction, other than, you know, my personal experiences with, with my family members. But when you say craving, is it a biological craving? Do these people, does their body require it to some extent? Requires maybe not the right word, but is there a... I think of this uh, more in, in line with this, um, like an appetite uh, for food. So um, where over time, a kind of hunger for drugs gets stronger and causes people to seek out drugs to satisfy that hunger or that craving. Mm -hmm. And that can become quite powerful in some people, correct? It's extremely powerful. The, the, the craving that develops is, is one of the hardest things to combat because it can last so long over time. So someone might go through a rehabilitation treatment in an extended treatment program and then be discharged from that program, but yet these, they're still battling these cravings and things that they see in the environment uh, might act as cues to, to prompt them to to want to 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 remind them that they that about these drugs and and trigger these this hunger again. Hmm. So, you know, I think a common misconception with drug addiction is that these people, you know, obviously they made a choice to originally do these drugs, but over time you know, from what we're kind of talking about here is that it becomes a biological 
thing in them that, that these people have a change in their body that actually drives them to seek out these drugs more often. Right. So it's, it's much like memory. And so a lot of researchers have spoken and written about the fact that this is a, this is really a co-opting or hijacking, uh, mechanisms normally used in learning and memory. Uh, and so these synapses or these connections between neurons become stronger and constitute a, a, a memory uh, for the drugs. And, and then uh, because it's in an area that's really involved in pleasure and reward, the, these, these synapses appear to uh, uh, continue to drive the desire for that feeling that was achieved initially by the drugs. So, John, your research that uh, focus, uh, focuses on the nucleus accumbens and these uh, um, acid-sensing ion channels and their role in um, uh, substance use disorders, where do you see uh, treatment uh, directions moving forward? What are you hoping to achieve? So, uh, I'm really excited about this research for s several reasons. Um, a lot of existing treatments target... Uh, the receptors for these drugs. For example, opioids act on opioid receptors in the brain, and, mm -hmm. it's, and people have not been terribly successful uh, solving the problem by just targeting these receptors. This work with acid-sensing ion channels presents a whole new uh, potential molecular target for therapies that's outside of these standard molecular targets that people have already tapped into. Uh, and so the current existing treatments for opioid use disorder are other opioids, for example. Mm -hmm. Looking at this very different molecular system provides potential opportunities for using drugs that have nothing to do with opioids in the traditional sense for, for trying to relieve or lessen the severity of these illnesses. So, how long have you been doing research at the VA? Oh, geez, it's about 21 years now. 21 years you've had funded research at the VA? Right. Wow, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. So, um, how has the VA helped your research career? Well, the VA has been really critical for um, helping me um, provide research support for the science that I've been doing. One of the very first opportunities uh, that they provided was what was called a career development award and it was for young scientists and you didn't have to have much preliminary data but just some ideas and uh, that may have promise and uh, the VA was really progressive in funding young scientists and that that funding uh, pr proved to be very influential in helping me get my career started yeah, I hear you there. I have a CDA as well, and it's been very influential in getting me um, at least to the point where I'm at now where I can hopefully make the transition into independence, uh, which is nice. It was nice that someone like the VA took a or invested in me as a young scientist. It's it's nice to see that they still do that. So, And, and it's, it's, I think, designed or intended to promote researchers or young scientists who do research that's really relevant to, to the veteran population. There's just no other program or opportunity out there that's, that's like that. Yeah, so, so along those lines, why do you think it's important that the VA um, has a research program? I, I think a lot of veterans don't even know about the research program that the VA has. And so 
Can you explain a little bit why it's important that the VA has its own independent research program? I, there are aspects about veterans' health that are relatively unique. And I think the VA provides an, a venue and an, and an opportunity to learn to probe the causes and consequences of problems that are unique or, or relatively so to veterans. And uh, the combat experience, uh, wartime situations, th those are pr pretty unique to veterans by and large. Yeah, that's, you know, it's interesting, the, the VA research, when I think about it, it's, you know, it's very applicable to, to veterans themselves, but in the grand scheme of things, there's been so many discoveries through veterans. You know, there's this thing called the Million, million Veteran Program, uh, where they're trying to get a, a million genomes sequenced, um, which is going to be a very powerful uh, genetic tool moving forward in the world of science. And um, so I think it, it's, the VA focuses on veterans, but in the grand scheme of things, it has this huge um, ability to affect the general public as well. And I think uh, there's another up. benefit also, and and that is by providing this research opportunity, it's a it becomes a a way to recruit uh, top notch physicians and scientists to the VA to direct their attention to problems that are specific to the veteran population. Absolutely. Do you have any veterans in your family? My grandfather was a World War II-era veteran. Awesome. Cool. Well, John, uh, thank you for your time uh, today, and we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Sure. It's a pleasure, Levi. Thank you. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.